0: Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space.
1: Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting-edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer and I'm the Global Innovation and Research Leader for Gateway Sciences. Welcome to another episode of Gateway Sessions. Get ready for an episode filled with wisdom, compassion, and inspiration. As we talk with the remarkable Dr. Mark Golston, who has been admiringly described as a people hacker. With his extensive experience as a psychiatrist, executive coach, and consultant to major organizations, Dr. Golston has made a name for himself as a thought leader in the fields of leadership, empathy, and healing. He is the creator of the innovative process known as surgical empathy, which uses targeted and focused empathy to help people break through emotional and psychological blocks that impede their well-being and functioning in life. He has been a clinical assistant professor of medicine at UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute for over 20 years, and has worked with numerous high-profile companies and organizations such as IBM, ESPN, and the FBI. Dr. Golston is also a best-selling author, speaker, and passionate social activist, and his mission is to inspire people to make a positive change in the world. His books include Just Listen, Discover the Secret to Getting Through to Absolutely Anyone, which ranked number one in six Amazon categories and has been translated into 14 languages. Dr. Golston has appeared on Oprah, The Today Show, CNN, and he is the co-founder of Heartfelt Leadership. An organization whose mission is to identify, celebrate, pay tribute to, develop, empower, embolden, and impassion heartfelt leaders to heal the world and then change it for the better. As a former clinical interventional psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry, Dr. Golston has also worked extensively on suicide prevention and has learned to hack into the minds of suicidal as well as potentially violent individuals to prevent acts of harm to themselves or others. In short, Dr. Golston's experience and expertise make him an incredible resource for anyone looking to improve their communication skills, overcome self-defeating behavior, or cope with trauma. And mental health challenges. Please join us as we learn from his insights on how to heal the world, one conversation at a time. None of the content in this podcast constitutes medical advice or should be construed as a recommendation to use psychedelics. There are psychological, physical, and sometimes legal risks with such usage. Please consult your doctor before considering anything we discuss in this episode. Mark, welcome to Gateway Sessions. It is such a pleasure to connect with you here.
0: I've been looking forward to this for a while, so I can hardly wait to find out what we talk about.
1: (laughs) Me too, and especially since at Gateway Sessions, we have a great focus amongst other also on mental health, and you are clearly someone who has done a lot of work in that field. Your mission is to heal others and also help change perceptions and also healing modalities as far as i've understood amongst other you're the author of post traumatic stress disorder for dummies and you said that trying to heal and then transform the fragility at the core of individuals such as veterans with PTSD into emotional strength and resilience with transactional solutions is like putting lipstick on a pain. Can you please give us some examples of these transactional type of solutions you are referring to and tell us why they don't work? Well,
0: a lot of times, here's my view of PTSD. I tried to rename it, but I just gave up on that. Because what most people live with is they don't live ptsd what they live is something i call rta and rta stands for re-traumatization avoidance re-traumatization avoidance and you can really find out about that if you ask someone who's been deeply traumatized if you say to them oh you're so courageous that you got over your trauma they will look at you in the eye and they'll say I never got over it. I got past it. And then, if you ask them, what do you mean? They'll say, I'm not the same. And if you ask them, what do you mean you're not the same? They'll say, I'm tentative. I don't totally relax. I feel exhaustion, but I don't feel peace. I can feel fun, but I don't know what joy is. And if you say to them, do you think you could go through it again? Many of the people I've seen, they look at you like a deer in the headlights and say, there's no way I could go through it again. I don't know why it didn't take me down the first time. So a lot of the symptoms, as I see, of PTSD or PTS are ways to avoid being re-traumatized because at your core, you don't believe that you could make it through it. During the pandemic, I co-authored a couple of books with a wonderful woman named Diana Handel. She was the CEO of a hospital where an employee of the month came in and killed his two supervisors and then himself. And she led the whole hospital through that. And she's incredible. And we wrote a couple of books and one of them was called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And the idea being there, and we laid it out in Why Cope When You Can Heal, is that and see if you can follow along with me, Ariana. that when you're going through a trauma, you're doing whatever you can to survive it in the moment. And in order to survive it, you push away thoughts and feelings because you think if you give in to them, you'll just fall apart. You'll shatter. You're terrorized. And and what happens is you get past it and you want to stay away from it. There's something that we talk about called the horror, terror, fragile trifecta. And what that means is when you're in the middle of a trauma, you're horrified and the feeling that it broke something in you or damaged something in you, and the feeling that the next damage could break you completely, you feel a sense of terror. So you feel fragile. But if you're a first responder or if you're in the military, what happens is you are trained to push that away. And what helps you push it away is a combination of adrenaline and testosterone. And that can make you feel powerful. It also insulates you from the thoughts and feelings so that you can function. And then what happens is you stay in the war zone. You stay in the middle of COVID, in the middle of New York City or some other cities in Europe, and you think you're pretty strong, although you feel something inside isn't right. And then what happens is you get past the danger, and you should be feeling wonderful, but when you get past the danger, the insulation from the combination of adrenaline and testosterone goes away. And without the insulation... It feels like your feelings and thoughts that you pushed away are going to come up and rip you apart. I remember one person I was seeing who described it this way. He said, when you're in the middle of a war zone, it's like you hear a screaming cat, an alley cat, and you put put it in the cellar. And then you hear another one, and you put that in the cellar. And the screaming alley cat are those thoughts and feelings. And you keep putting them away and putting them away and putting them away. And then you close the cellar. But then when the danger passes, it feels like the cellar door is going to burst. But it doesn't feel like a single cat's going to come out. It feels like a hundred cats are going to come out. They're going to rip you apart. So a lot of the symptoms of PTS or PTSD are you have emotional numbing increase in drug, and alcohol use. You have an increased startle reflex. So you're driving along and you're relaxed. You're away from people who make you a little crazy. And then the car next to you backfires and you jump out of your skin. And so that's because these are all these thoughts and feelings that, that you're not insulated from are pushing to come out. And I think this coincides with how, how psychedelics work with people gone through trauma, because what happens, you're doing everything you can to stay in control. And down deep, you know, you're out of control, but you're afraid to be out of control because it feels if you let yourself be out of control, you're going to shatter and you're not going to come back. So I think what psychedelics help people do is it's like a therapeutic psychosis. What it basically says is you're going to give up control because the drugs are going to take it away from you. And we're going to walk you through it. And we know what's going to happen to you physiologically. And we know even if you want to vomit, even if you have diarrhea, we'll walk you through it. And what happens is when you go through it in a safe environment and you rethink, re experience things, but you do it safely when you get to the other end of it, you can't believe that you survived, but you feel this enormous sense of relief. And then following the psychedelic experience, it's usually advised that you see a therapist to help you piece together all these different fragmented thoughts, feelings, hallucinations that you had to see if you can make sense of it. It's interesting. When I would work with veterans, and I would walk them through falling apart. There's a point where more than a few of them had a gun to their head. And what would happen is they had lost control. And these are people who tend to like to be in control. Military like to be in control. A lot of people who use psychedelics for therapeutic means tend to be a little bit control freaks. And control being a control freak can make you successful monetarily in a narrow part of life, but it's not your friend when it comes to the rest of life. It's tough for people to get close to you. You don't get close to anyone. And so what I when I spoke to these veterans who had been suicidal, they said, they said God saved me. And I said, what do you mean? They said, when I had the gun next to my head, And I had my finger on the trigger. I said, God, I don't want to kill myself, but I can't take the pain anymore. What happens is they cross over and they surrender. Does that make any sense? And then in the power of surrender, rather than their greatest fear that they're going to fall apart, they feel relief. They're crying and they find God. Oh, my. And the God is. I feel free when I surrender, which is not something that makes sense to them when they're trying to stay in control. And I think psychedelics help that.
1: Thank you for sharing your insights and your experiences on that, Mark. And you have touched on so many really profound and also fascinating points here. In, For example, I would like to first and foremost talk about what you mentioned, that A lot of people who work, let's say, in the military, or they work as first responders, they work as police officers. Of course, these people are excellent at what they do because they're so good at compartmentalizing and at suppressing certain emotions and reactions while going through very stressful and traumatic situations. And then later, this exact skill or talent, if you so want to call it, is what actually proliferates their being unwell. And so what you just mentioned about this experience of surrender, which a lot of individuals then also equate to meeting God or being in the presence of the divine, however you want to word it, is what they ultimately feel is something that holds them and potentially also heals them. So, you also spoke about this was actually in a in an interview I read with you when I researched you prior to our conversation Mark you spoke about how so many of these individuals once they leave the whether it's for example the military then these cats I really like this analogy that you shared of an individual you work with that all these alley cats try to burst through the cellar door and hell really breaks loose inside their heads when somebody is experiencing this. You actually also shared in an article, I think in, it was on Medium, you shared about the eight steps to suicide. So when somebody's experiencing this, when a loved one witnesses this or senses this is happening or a good friend, I would like to know what is something as a bystander that that we can do if it does not seem like the individual themselves is able at that moment to use resources and also maybe prior to answering this question if you could walk us through these eight steps to suicide these different phases individuals go through
0: ariana i write so much Mm -hmm. you're asking me a question and it's i'm not sure that i remember the exact eight steps But what they really cover is that you feel this vulnerability from the Mm -hmm. trauma. Yes. And you try to suppress the vulnerability. And again, adrenaline and testosterone really help you to do that if you're in the military or first responder or police or firefighter. And, And what happens as the danger passes, the thoughts and feelings you tried to push away Want to break through because you don't have the insulation anymore. Part of what psychedelics do is they remove all the insulation and they just allow everything that is suppressed to burst through and just be free. It's like draining an abscess that's killing you inside, but but you're in your waking conscious life, you're afraid to touch the abscess because it's like all those screaming cats. And then what happens is you go through. A state where you feel fragile, you feel brittle, you feel that you could shatter, and you feel that you could not just shatter, but you could fragment. So imagine a windshield that is shattered, but it hasn't yet broken. And so there's this feeling that I'm going to fragment. And so one of the reasons people become suicidal is if they really feel viscerally that if they fragment, they're never coming back together again, being suicidal, killing themselves, is an act of control. But if they're convinced, if they're convinced that they're going to shatter and fragment and never come back, and there's something so terrorizing about that, terrifying you can understand why people would say, I don't want to be around. I I need to kill it. And so those are some of the stages that it feels like you're going through. And again, as we said, that of the deepest part of it, that's when you'll grab on to something or you'll grab on to a gun or pills just to take the pain away. One of the things you can do with people you're concerned about there's a term that I've given to some of my work with suicidal patients, and I have a pretty good track record, and it's called surgical empathy. If you think that when you're really desperate, that you're out in the ocean and you're drowning and a life a guard comes over, you're going to pull him or her down. One of the things that they teach lifeguards is how to keep a drowning panic person from pulling you both down. That's one. That's a big part of their training. And I believe that you form psychological adhesions, which is different than an attachment. An adhesion is like after surgery, when organs come back together and they stick, if they block you, you have to go in and surgically break the adhesion. And I believe that surgical empathy has the possibility of helping people break the adhesion to death as the only way to take away their pain. If you've read some of my writings, something that I've spoken about a great deal, and I did an article after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died by suicide. And it got a lot of views, several hundred thousand, because the title of it was Why People Kill Themselves, It's Not Depression. Pretty sexy title. And I said, There's a lot of people that are depressed who don't kill themselves. A lot of people who lose a job, they lose a marriage, they don't kill themselves. It contributes to it, but in my work with people who have been suicidal, one of the things I believe they all have in common is despair. And if you break the word despair into D-E-S-P-A-I-R, despair, it means feeling unpaired with reasons to live, hopeless, unpaired with a future, helpless, unpaired with the ability to get out, powerless, useless, worthless, meaningless, purposeless, and in the end, pointless to go on. So I believe you pair or you form an adhesion to death to take the pain away. But if you compare with people in the dark night of the soul, where they feel felt, they may let go of death and grab onto that. So there's an anecdote that I share. You may have heard it from some of my interviews. One of my early mentors was a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman. He was one of the pioneers in the study of suicide. And we were both at UCLA, and he was a mentor, and he would refer me suicidal people who needed to be discharged from the hospital, and the residents didn't want to see them because they were still suicidal, but they weren't acutely suicidal. And so he would call me, put them on the phone, and then and then they'd be discharged, and I'd see them. And, and one of my most fortunate Occurrences is, that when I finished my training, I was supposed to get a fellowship, but the fellowship f- fell through. So I decided I'll go out there and see if anybody shows up, see if people refer me to people. And I had this mentor. And because I didn't work in an institution, I followed protocols, but I didn't have to really f- stick to them as I would in an institution. And when I would sit with suicidal patients, I would look into their eyes, and they'd be screaming out at me in their eyes. They wouldn't be saying anything, but they'd be screaming out saying, you're checking boxes, and I'm running out of time. So I had a choice to check the boxes, and if I worked in an institution, I would have had to check the boxes because I would have had to fill out all these forms. So check the boxes or throw them away and see where their eyes took me. And I remember one patient, I'll call her Nancy. That's not her name. And in those days, once a month, I would work in a state psychiatric hospital. And sometimes I'd be up for 24 hours. And when you're up for 24 hours, your physiology or thinking gets a little bit weird. And there she was on Monday. And I was seeing her two or three times a week. She had made several suicide attempts and been hospital multiple times before I started seeing her. Dr. Schneidman had referred her to me. And Ariana, she never made eye contact. You're me, and I'm Nancy, she'd be like this. I was seeing her for several months, and that was as long as she'd gone without a hospitalization or a suicide attempt. And then there was this one episode where I hadn't slept for 24 hours. And there she was like this. And as I was seated with her, all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking out at her, and it's black and white. And I'm feeling cold, and I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. So I'm a medical doctor. I'm a psychiatrist, but also trained in neurology. So she's like this. And I did a neurologic exam on myself to see if I was having a stroke or seizure. And I'm going like this and this to see if I'm having double vision. I'm tapping my elbows. And it wasn't rude because she was like this. But maybe I am looking out at the world and feeling the way she feels. feeling that the world is black and white and cold. So I leaned into it and it got colder and colder. And then there was a point in which I blurted something out, which normally I wouldn't say, but I was sleep-deprived, and I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad, and I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you, and maybe I'll understand why you had to do it to get out of the pain. And I thought to myself, you just gave her permission to kill herself. (laughs) And I remember saying to myself, don't write that down anywhere. And that was the first time she looked at me. And she went, and then she locked onto my eyes like I'm locking onto yours. And I said, what are you thinking? And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. I'm overdue to kill myself. And she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain, maybe I won't need to. Mm. And then she smiled. And then I reached into her eyes and I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to throw treatments at you that you've been through before unless you request them but you've been through all kinds of treatments, and I'm not going to do that. without be okay? And she nodded like you're nodding. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are, and I'm going to keep you company there for as long as it takes, because I just don't want you to be alone there anymore. And she let go of death. But could you follow that at all, Ariana?
1: Actually, I'm a yes, I could, Mark. Thank you so much. I'm actually a little bit choked up because it really is very moving emotionally. And it's such a profound example of feeling felt, not just understood. And to actually, basically, when you're able to convey to somebody that. Not only will you reach a hand into the abyss, but you'll climb down there and just stay with them there as long as for it's needed. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine how that must have felt for the woman you call Nancy. What a gift, Mark.
0: I think you imagined it.
1: I did, yes. And I do know individuals who struggle with Nancy's story, of course, is it's her journey and I can't put myself in her shoes. And also individuals that I know, everybody has their own path and they're dealing with it in their own way. But it really struck a chord with me because I've witnessed secondhand the the sadness, the despair that some of us have to walk through. And I also always felt from a complete layperson's perspective, just my inner sense that when it's possible to connect and people feel truly seen or felt, as you say, that indeed is not only a lifeline, but a reason to live for. And it pairs one again with hope, at the very least.
0: Yeah, you had asked, so what can lay people do? Because people Mm -hmm. watch this, and I'm guessing Other people watching this might get a little choked up and they'll say, We can't do that. He spent his life doing this. See, one of the things that I know, but I know this from experience, is that everybody is hiding something. Everybody is deeply afraid of something. Everybody feels shame that's tough to live with. And I also know that if you can be non judgmental and you can say to someone, You seem really stressed. What are you afraid of? And there's something, one of the vehicles of surgical empathy is the five realies. And they'll say, I don't know if I can stay in this marriage. I don't know if I can keep this job. And I don't know what I do. I know you don't know what you do, but what are you really afraid of? I'm afraid if everything fell apart, you know, that I don't know if I could pay my bills or support my family. I understand that too. But what are you really afraid of? And if you keep saying that, like Nancy, they may look you right in the eye and they may say, I'm afraid that if I discover that I'm worthless, that I won't be able to go on. Or I'm afraid, I'm afraid that I'm crazy, just like my mother or my father. And I've said to myself my whole life that if I ever turned out to be like them, I just couldn't tolerate that. And even then you could say, what's really going on? And they may get angry. Yeah. But it's like picking a scab, and they'll and they might say, "Don't you get it? Don't you get it? There is some pain in this world that you'd be better off to be dead." And you don't rush them. I understand, but let's come up with a solution. You create this space. There's a term that someone gave me, and I think it comes from the that uh, that. Vietnamese, not mystic, uh, Thick Nick Young, I think, I think, but he died in the last few years.
1: Yes, uh, not the time.
0: Yeah, but it, someone attributed it to him, and the term is interbeing, and interbeing is what goes on between people, separate from whatever they're saying. So when you got choked up, because I was touching a nerve in you. I was touching something that you've seen in other people. Our interbeing went way up. And when interbeing goes way up, so too does oxytocin. And a lot of people don't know this. People know that high cortisol is related to high stress. And the higher your cortisol the more likely it's going to trigger your amygdala to hijack your ability to think. and, And the amygdala will shunt your blood into your lower brain, your primitive brain, away from your thinking brain. And what a lot of people don't know is that oxytocin counteracts high cortisol. And when cortisol goes down, the amygdala settles down, blood flow goes up to your upper brain, and your ability to think comes back. I want to share a, an anecdote. Please. A, a very good friend of mine is the co-CEO of a company called Inc. Global. and Inc. Global published 80% of the in-flight magazines at least in most of the American companies. And because of the pandemic, their business went away. No one wanted to touch magazines. And what he would do with his 150 people who were in, I believe, Singapore, Miami, and London, is he would bring in people to do little presentations to see if he could keep their spirits up because he said he knew they would get through this. And Simon Leslie, love him like a brother. He's this, we can do this, we'll get through it. But one of the things that I've noticed is when you try to motivate people, it is a little bit like putting lipstick on a pain. And so, yes, they get excited. But then as soon as you take the pump away, so Simon, he makes the mistake of trusting me. I said, Simon. I want to try something with your people. And he just trusts me. I guess people can trust me. And so picture this. There's over 100 people on a Zoom. So there's multiple screens. And I'd already done a presentation earlier, so they knew who I was. But I I wanted to address the collective trauma they were feeling. So picture this. They're all in the Zoom. And I said, I want to try an experiment. I want you to think of the lowest and worst moment you have felt in the last couple weeks. And when you can remember that moment, raise your hand. So they look at me like, like I'm crazy, but one by one, they raise their hand. And you can picture this Ariana, because you can tell that as more and more hands went up, you could feel it, the whole zoom call flexed into vulnerability. And then I said, I'd like you to select a word and write it in the chat area, a single word from this list, or come up with your own, that matches how you felt during that low point. And the words were anxious, depressed, angry, overwhelmed, alone, lonely, numb, ashamed, and a few others. So again, they paused. And then it started to dribble in the chat area with their names and the word. And then it starts to flood. And as it's flooding, you look in the Zoom call and people are crying. What happened is, I totally immerse them in oxytocin. And you, can you picture that? I am like this. And then afterwards, I I said, "How many of you felt better because of the exercise?" And about 80% indicated they did. How many felt worse? Zero. How many felt no change? About 20%. And then after the exercise, Simon, a couple of people came up and said, that was not just the best culture-building exercise that we've had. It was the best exercise I've ever been a part of in my career. And then I'll just put icing on the cake. So if you're watching this or listening to this, go to markgulston.com and click on testimonials. And there's about 30 testimonials, that video testimonials, because Simon, and you'll see it, you'll scroll down, and he looks absolutely drunk. He's not drunk. And he sends me this video testimonial, and in his British accent, he says, Thank you. I don't know. I don't know what speechless. You're an amazing man and just thank you. And it so touched me. And he and I are friends. I said, Could I put that up on my site? I've never had a video testimonial. And because we're friends, he said, I do look drunk. I wasn't. But what happens now is anybody, if you're so moved, Ariana, you could send me a selfie and said, I had Mark on as a guest. And with a little bit of a Germanic background, we don't get choked up that easily. And he did it to me, whatever you say. But but that's the power yes. of oxytocin.
1: And so if I understand correctly, the physiological effects, of course, are complex. And thank you for illuminating that for us and how oxytocin relates to how cortisol functions or actually decreases. This is really fascinating stuff. So between the interbeing and the vulnerability and then the connection in a group that's when our oxytocin levels start to rise so it's a beautiful thing to be able to create that whether it's a one-on in a one-on-one setting or in a group setting even if it's not in person such as you experience and actually facilitated for people on this zoom call which is absolutely beautiful. Now, when that's not possible for all kinds of different reasons, and also given the fact that oxytocin, for example, is used, I know it's prescribed for women who are dealing with a severe premenstrual symptom or also with other issues related to their sexuality. So there are these troches that women can take. And then apparently you get flooded by these wonderful emotions that come when oxytocin circulates in your body. Is this a therapy that actually is used in momentarily also in conjunction with, let's say, a modality like talk therapy? Or is this something that's being talked about? Is that a possibility to aid people to get into that state?
0: When you're demonstrating there's various kinds of empathy there's cognitive empathy i think there's three kinds the surgical empathy is is letting go of your need to be right letting go of because you have the experience that if you let go of that the other person will lower their guard and if you have the experience of seeing people lower their guard and feeling relief from it then one of the best things you can do is which is very difficult in relationships because we get into these we get into these squabbles. I'll share something. I love my wife. We've been married 40, 44 years. And I remember years ago, we were getting into a squabble. And when you get into a squabble, she'd say something and I'd say something and she'd say something, and I'd say something. Well, here's a tip you can take back to your relationship. And instead of Trading those little quips that weren't making it better. I asked myself, I wonder what it's like for her right now with total curiosity. And so I think she had said something and instead of my firing back something, and she was perplexed, do you like where this is going? She said, no. I said I don't like it either. I can't stand it. And I thought you might not like it because I'll sleep in the den and then tomorrow will be nice or whatever. I said I can't stand it either. Do you have any idea how we can keep it from going there? And she looked at me and she smiled and she said, "No, but you're doing good."
1: <laughs>
0: uh-huh. So here's a tip. I've actually I have a lot of coaching clients and When you're feeling triggered in an interaction with someone. So I like three-step type things. You mentioned eight steps. But the three steps when you're feeling triggered is the first one is downshift. Because when you're driving a car, there's a stick shift or a motorcycle. When you downshift, you gain control of the road. Whereas when you step on the accelerator, you go off the cliff. So, the signal to yourself is downshift. Then, the second step is make it about them. It's not blaming them, but make it about them instead of it's all about you. You've been upset. Downshift, make it about them. Take a few breaths. And then you can, they can say whatever they want to say to you. But you let go of it being about you, needing to be right, and you look at them and you say, what's really going on for you? Get back into a transactional thing. They share what's going on for them. People have tried this really like it, and so the advanced conversation is when they tell you what's really going on for them. So, how often do you feel this way with me at its worst, how awful can that feel to you? Take me to the last time I did it besides besides now. You deserve better, and I'm going to fix this. Can you see the steps and the power of that?
1: Yes, absolutely, Mark. And I think this is such valuable advice this is these are such great tools you're sharing with us and whether it's on the say day-to-day level with your partner and i'm sure most of us who are in a relationship can relate to what you just shared what can be going on like it did between you and your wife and so whether it's in these quote normal day-to-day relations or in situations where the emotional stakes are even higher And my big takeaway here is truly make it about them because so often we're caught up in being reactionary and everything, we take everything deeply personal and it's about us. And instead of taking this breath and thinking bigger picture and how is this other soul right now faring that I'm in this together with, it's all about me. And then you get into that space where it's all about defending yourself, or rather the ego, or certain things get triggered, and we lose control of the road. We lose control of the goal, the destination we actually have in mind.
0: So can I make an empathic observation about you right now? (laughs) Please. As I tune into you, I'm sensing actually a pleasant conflict that you're having. And the conflict is there's a part of you because of your professionalism that likes to make sense out of things. Let's make sense out of this, Mark. This is really very good, sensible stuff, but it's also touching a feeling part of you that's very powerful. And you're toggling between, let's make sense of this, and wanting to say, the heck with that. Let's see if we can bring some feeling into the world because a world that is driven. let's make sense of it, becomes Mm -hmm. senseless. So could you feel those different forces?
1: Always, pretty much most of the time when I am feeling or sensing into myself, there's the right brain, left brain, if you call it, or the part of me that likes to analyze and make sense of everything and categorize. I guess that's also tied to certain survival instincts we have. And then there's this vast pool of emotion a whole different set of intelligence, if you so want to call it. And to be honest, in when it comes to really important life decisions or situations, the emotional part usually has guided me much better when I do listen to it and act upon it.
0: Maybe we could call this... Interintelligence instead of emotional intelligence, because I look up, uh, I love emotional intelligence. I had Dan Goldman on my podcast. He created it. But a lot of it can be broken down into, you need to be self-aware. You need to be other aware. You need to be aware of how they want to be responded to. You need to adapt yourself so that you conform to what they really want and need. And you need to be aware of how you might be pushing them away. And I think that's all fine. But you can get lost in the, am I technically doing it right?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Whereas I think if we could foster learning to just lean in and just trusting, I wouldn't do this with someone who's going to take advantage of you. You need to so to be able to find people that you can lean into. Something I wanted to share with you, it's a slight tangent, but I'm very excited about. I like to simplify complicated things and it's all guided by empathy. Mm -hmm. It's not guided by textbooks. So when I came up with this despair, it was guided by empathy. They feel they can't pair with anything, hopeless, helpless, worthless. So something I'm excited about which could be a threat to a lot of psychology and psychiatry of the world, and we're going to do a pilot program with the military, is that I've come up with a definition of what mental health is. And I'm going to share it with you and your viewers and listeners. And tell me if you think it's accurate. Mental health psychological health, emotional health, is the ability to modify your immediate internal reaction to whatever life throws at you so that you can change your response to it in your mind or back into your life in a way that's constructive instead of destructive. And what we're, going, what we're doing with the military is we're giving them the definition. And I invite people to refine it. But if you just say, well, mental health is the ability to modify your immediate initial response, react, reaction, to whatever life throws at you. So as to change your response to it in your head or in the world to something that's constructive instead of destruct- destructive. And we're breaking the definition down to five components and then teaching people the skills if they agree with the definition. The first thing would be, and we're going to crowdsource it. We're going to have these people in the pilot program. We're going to say, okay, you agree with the definition. Great. Let's share what have any of you found has helped. To modify your immediate internal reaction. And so maybe people can share stories when someone cuts you off in traffic or when your spouse. And by the way, if you're listening in and you get into arguments, something that men can't stand. I'm just telling you this, I don't know if it's American. There's two words that i can't stand and i tell my wife please do not use them and those two words are never and always (laughs) you never you always and then i'll get passive aggressive and i'll say wait a minute this is really important you really believe what you just said that means a hundred percent of the time i don't do it i'm going to get this straight because I've been deluding myself that I occasionally get it right. (laughs) Yes.
1: I can relate to your feelings and the turning passive aggressive then. Yes.
0: (laughs) But so what we're going to invite people to do, look, I'm happy to share this with the world. Something I will share with you. I won't go into details. I have a health condition. Which is going to limit my lifespan. It's not going to happen soon. But I can't waste time. If I know anything that can help the world, I have to get it out there. Because I'm not having great success when I want to share this with a big establishment that has all kinds of programs they're trying to sell.
1: Thank you for spending your time with us today, Mark. Thank you for sharing so deeply with us. It's truly, it's a privilege to be here with you. And also thank you for sharing this, which I think is a beautiful and brilliant new, would you call it a concept a philosophy or description or all of it about what mental health constitutes?
0: I like all those words. We'll have to we'll have to find out the best one. I like those words better than definition, which is so <laughs> but you track with it, did it fit together, and then you elicit from people, we've all been through this. Let's find something that's doable by all of us. Cuz one of the things that I've noticed is that the more you believe in other people and you believe in their potential to heal themselves. That's where the surgical empathy is. Boy, if we go into the dark night of the soul, drain the abscess, not rush you into some treatment because we have to check boxes and we have to put a code in so we get get reimbursed. If we could go in there and just trust that you give people a tincture of love, it's amazing what that can do.
1: Yes, 100%. I personally am of the... Deep belief that love is the most powerful medicine of all. We just a few moments ago spoke about oxytocin and what that can do. They call it the love or the cuddle hormone, I believe. And there's all this new science actually emerging also with regards to epigenetics and with how our state of mind, what we truly not just think, but more so believe. And I think you can even liken it to what in the traditional Chinese medicine they call Shen, which is the heart, mind, energy that you can nurture, that you can nourish, that you can also train. That's what popped up in my brain when you explained about the crowdsourcing and how to get people to answer how certain things work for them. So in this way, we actually train our shen and to train this heart energy, which is an intelligence and to spread love, give a love injection or tincture. That is very powerful and obviously not necessarily linking up what, with what main mainstream medicine or treatments so far have told us. But there's very interesting also studies. I don't know if you're familiar with heart math. Yes. So, I think there's really exciting things coming forth, and it's wonderful to hear from you that this is something you are so deeply pursuing and also sharing, disseminating.
0: I want to share a final anecdote, might I? Yes. So, I'm retired now. I'm trying to teach and share what I know at places that'll have me on as a guest, like you have. But when I was practicing, and I would see some depressed patients, and I would push what's really going on? I know, what's really going on? Some of them would say, I don't think I deserve to be happy. Why? Because down deep, I'm just self-absorbed. I just care about myself. I just focused on myself entirely. And these were not narcissists, so they felt a deep sense of shame. I don't care about the world, so maybe I don't deserve to be happy. So what I used to do is I would give them a box of snacks, little treats, healthy treats. And I said, look, we're in Los Angeles. You can't go anywhere in Los Angeles and walk without passing a homeless person. So what I'd like you to do is always carry a bunch of these treats in your pocket. And once a day, if you see a homeless person, you don't want to scare them. Reach into your pocket, have it in your hand. You don't want to reach into your pocket when you're with them. They'll think you're going to have a gun or something. And you approach them with your hand open, extended. And you approach them slowly so you don't scare them. And you say, Hi, my name's Mark. What's your name? They have names. Homeless people have names that may surprise you. And maybe they'll answer. And then you look them in the eye and You may be afraid to give them money because of drugs or alcohol, but reach out and say, here's a little something. I hope it helps. And just hang in there and don't give up. And I said, I want you to do that once a day between now and our next session. So as you can imagine and not be surprised when they came in the next week, I said, how'd it work out? And they would Grumble, they'd say it helped.
1: (laughs) Oh, that is beautiful, Mark. And something I may actually take up that is truly a beautiful idea. And what a wonderful way to, in a meaningful way, to connect with another human being and just see each other and be in each other's presence, even if for just a few brief moments. That is truly meaningful.
0: Thank you for giving me a long leash because I took advantage of it.
1: Oh, I loved it. And thank you for sharing so many insights, so many different topics we touched upon. I have a feeling we even only scratched the surface here. And maybe at some point we'll be able to do a follow-up and also do a deeper dive into one of your many best-selling and very you know, celebrated books. I think you published nine of them total. And you're co-authored and authored them yourself. And it would be truly an honor to continue the conversation when you have time at some point in the future. Thank you for joining us.
0: I would like that because I'd like to work on this conflict in your head between the analytic side (laughs) and the emotional side. I find it fascinating and endearing.
1: (laughs) You're most kind. I'm all yours if you really want to pick what's in here, then (laughs) I will volunteer. It would be interesting to learn a little bit more about that myself in the 46 years of my life that I haven't been able to learn yet. And I'm, I'm still also struggling with the times. Yeah.
0: It would be my pleasure.
1: Thank you, Mark. And again, thank you for spending the most valuable thing we have, which is time and also true empathy and compassion. Thank you for sharing this with us today here on Gateway Sessions. Be well.
0: Thank you. I will be because of all that oxytocin. (laughs) (laughs) Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space.